Having climbed the steps of the entrance, I came to the temple itself. Beyond the first gate was a large court where all could exchange money and goods. How one had to admire the beards of these men of mammon. They had been curled by a warm iron and were immaculate in their pride. So these moneylenders looked like peacocks. And the priests also looked like peacocks as they moved among them. All was vanity. At home, their tables were bountiful, while the poor sat in the stinking alleys of the city. I wrapped silence about me like a holy cloth that others would not dare to touch. I sat alone on a stone bench and looked at how these people cast money into the alms box. Many who were rich cast much, but then came a poor woman. And her shawl was threadbare. She threw in a small coin. My heart leapt. I called to those disciples who were near and I said, This poor woman has put in more than all the rich. They leave a tithe of their abundance. She gave her living. So she has turned the money into a tribute to the Lord. The wealth the wealth they give only to impress each other. I thought of money and how it was an odious beast. It consumed everything offered to it. What slobbering was in such greed? I thought of how the rich are choked with the weight of gold and their gardens grow no fruit to satisfy them. There is oppression in the perfume of the air and none of the rich man's blooms bring happiness for his neighbor is wealthier than himself and his gardens are more beautiful so are the rich always envious of man's gold here in the outer court of the temple surrounded by these money lenders I spoke to all and my voice was my own I said no man can pay allegiance to two masters for he will cling to the one he needs and in secret despise the others. You cannot serve God and mammon. In the eyes of the moneylenders, greed was as sharp as the point of a spear. The rage of Isaiah came to me. In his words I cried out, These tables are a pool of vomit. In such filth nothing is clean. And I turned over each of the tables before me. I threw them over with the money that was on them. And I exulted as the coins gave small cries on striking the stones of the courtyard. Each possessor ran after his lost coins like the sweet swine of Gadarene as they rushed into the sea. Then I knocked over the seats of those who sold doves and I opened the cages. On this commotion of wings, the multitude who were with me came forward and cheered at this defiance of usury. I said, my house shall be known above all nations as a house of prayer, whereas you are men of mammon and have made it a den of thieves. Indeed, it was the truth. Men who sought mammon were thieves. They were thieves even if they'd never stolen a cup of wheat. Their greed stripped virtue from all who would emulate them. 
Soon the priests would be speaking of this act in all the sanctuaries within the great temple. For the priests, like the moneylenders, also kept their accounts with God separate from their accounts with mammon. And how quick they were to water all the vines of cupidity that grew on that one side of their soul. The Gospel According to Norman Mailer in his book, The Gospel According to the Son. The Temple and Jesus. I guess it's a bit like me walking into church house tomorrow and getting a bit angry about something they put in the code and overturning the benches at the front and going up the stairs and knocking all the... There's a few people laughing they might want to do that very thing. This is something that we've become so familiar with. And maybe we're thinking, uh, is this, was Jesus angry? But Jesus didn't sin, so was this about righteous anger? Maybe we're thinking, does that mean we can't bring our fair trade stall into the church? And we dealt with that when we studied this particular situation in Mark's gospel and Session have dealt with that and we've moved on and if you want to hear my sermon on that then go back onto the, uh, uh, the webpage and listen to it not that you're likely to do that but that's what maybe we see here maybe we see it all about these things sometimes we can be distracted by the money and the drama rather than what's going on in this particularly brilliant bit of editorial by John. And evangelicalism can do that, can't it? We get distracted by the surface. We read the text as if it was written for the 21st century. My first 10 years as a Christian, and maybe even still you might say, when I preached, that's all I saw was the text rather than what the context was. The positives of every day with Jesus was that we read the Bible a lot more. The downside of it was that the Bible almost became like those little wishes you get in a Chinese cookie that really didn't have very much context. And one lonely verse at the top of a page every morning or evening wasn't really that well explained in the context of how it was written, etc. Now, Fitzroy, you are a clever people. And my suggestion is that we should be reading the Bible as much as we did when we were reading every day with Jesus but I just would like to encourage you to put the every day with Jesus down and get a couple of good commentaries and read this book in its context and learn what is really going on in the text Bono said this week the enemy of great is very good I think the enemy of knowing the Bible is flicking the Bible regularly without spending time in it. John's editorial intentionality in this gospel is phenomenal. Let me remind you where we've come. He starts with that amazing prologue, the word of creation. What he's doing is he's setting out who Jesus is. He is the word. He was there in the beginning. Nothing was made that wasn't made through him. There it is, right in chapter 1. And then further on in chapter 1, we looked at the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He is the creator. He is the redeemer. Chapter 1. 
And then we come in here to verse or chapter 2. And last week Jonathan was telling us about the first sign that Jesus did. The first sign that he did. Which takes us back to that first sign of the plagues. Water into blood. Water into the wine that in the Passover would become the symbol of blood. These are not just stories. These are not just stories told. John is using these stories to tell us who this Jesus is and what this Jesus is doing. Now let, let me remind you, as I have been reminding you in the ones that I've preached out of this series so far, that N.T. Wright's book, When God Became King, is one of the influences of how I'm seeing it. And actually, interestingly, some of the commentaries that I'm reading around this, you can see similar thoughts. Wright says four things about the gospel. Jesus, they're about Jesus as fulfilling the vocation of Israel. They're about Jesus as God's presence, the Messiah. They're about Jesus launching God's renewed people. And they're the clash of the kingdoms, Caesar versus God, which actually is what the whole of the Bible in some ways is a theme of. Pharaoh instead of God, Herod instead of God, Caesar instead of God, who is Lord? The prophets of Baal instead of God. It's right there through the entire text. And so we've had the word, the Lamb of God, the water into wine or blood, the Passover image that's right there, and then we come to this place that John puts, Jesus clearing the temple. And again, it's about more than overturning tables, which Norman Mailer, bless him, in all his research, would not have been thinking about. Because he wasn't coming through that Old Testament into the New Testament. He was perhaps reading a more about the events rather than the meaning of the events. Much as there's some wonderful commentary in that particular chapter that we've read, and I encourage you to go and read it. It's Norman Mailer. It's not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but it's an interesting read and gives some interesting angles on the gospel stories. The temple's interesting because this would be being written at a time when the temple has been cleared. 66 to 70 AD. The temple's flattened. Jerusalem's flattened. Israel as a nation's pretty much over. No homeland, no temple, existentialist crisis. The Jews would have been seeing the clash of the kingdoms as the Romans overturning the temple and the city. But John and the early Christians were seeing another clash. God and the system that had got so warped but also not just a clash this was that lever that i keep talking about that watershed where everything moved from old covenant to new covenant where the fulfillment of all of the old testament becomes true in jesus we see in this passage that francis has read both the clearing of the temple and then jesus saying that he would destroy or they would destroy the temple and he would Build it back up in three days? What could you be talking about? It took 46 years to do that. No, the temple changes right here. Now, the one excuse that David Montgomery might have of not being here is that he moved house this weekend. Apart from the excuse that I was organizing it, which always is a good excuse. And right here in this passage, if we want to put it in that way, God moves house. This is the change of what the temple was. 
It was something that had become corrupt with moneylenders and strutting peacock, religious, self-righteous people. And God was saying, enough of that. Here is a new temple that's going to be destroyed but raised up in three days. Because the temple moves from being a place where the presence of God is supposed to be to being the presence of God himself in Jesus. Jesus fulfilling that vocation, that story of what Israel was all about, and being the presence of God right there in flesh and blood. The word became flesh and dwelt for a time among us. John chapter 1 again. This is the launch also of the new people of God, and we'll come to that in a moment. Those who would gather at the temple to find God would no longer gather at the temple to find God, and we'll look at it in a moment. You don't come here either to find God. If you've come in here today and you've thought, I tell you what, that week was really tough. I must go into God's house, God's presence. You're living in the wrong side of John too. But we'll come to that. The clash of the kingdoms is right here. Creation was a place for God to dwell. It was God's temple. And the image of God is usually in that temple, and we were the image of God, but into that temple of creation. When all went askew, there was this other way that God used to be a presence in the Old Testament, the tabernacle, the presence of God, the temple that we're thinking about now, the presence of God. But now, God's presence is not in buildings made by hands, but in the word become flesh and dwelling among us. You see, there was a secret that if we would think about this was somewhere else in one of the other gospels. Your sins are forgiven, Jesus said. Now we might have thought, well that means he must have been God because only God could forgive sins. But look at it a little bit more. Where did you go in this world to get your sins forgiven? The temple. So when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven... What was Jesus being? The temple. The presence of God. And here Jesus comes in to end one presence of God and point us to the other that would be rebuilt in those three days. The temple was Jesus himself. And then he relaunches this new community that is the temple which is not Fitzroy Presbyterian Church on University Street, which is you, and you, and you. You didn't come here to find the presence of God today. You brought the presence of God as he indwells in you and me. Because that's what happens in Acts 2. In that pouring out of the Holy Spirit into the disciples and the apostles God shifts from being in the building of the temple to being within his people so the lamb of chapter 1 takes over the temple in chapter 2 and in chapter 3 we'll see that being led into a new birth you must be born again the wind blows where ever it pleases and we don't know where it's going to and we don't know where it's coming from so it is with those born of the spirit the new people of God the launching of this new people who would be the temples of God's spirit the most unpredictable bunch in the world and I used to say that and say are we unpredictable but when I say it in Fitzroy boy you are unpredictable 
These are the freakiest little bunch that could take the freakiest little minister in the world and put him in amongst you. But that's what it's supposed to be. Indwelt by the Spirit of God, a new community is birthed. So this is what's happening here. Jesus is saying, this is different. This is the old covenant gone, turned it over. I love that bit in Mailer where he says the coins strike and cry and weep as they hit uh, the courtyard. And Jesus says, from here, don't look to this building. Look to me, because I am its fulfillment. So three wee things as we tie this all up. There are issues of greed in here. Now, it's interesting in John's way of putting it, because it does look as if it's the marketplace itself that he is having a go at. But most of the commentators I hear are saying that you had to buy in the outer bits of the temple court because you were coming from all over. If you were coming down from Galilee and you were taking that journey around Samaria to make sure you didn't have to speak to any Samaritans on the way down, and you'd, there was no way you were going to bring a lamb or a dove or whatever it is you might have needed to get there. So you came and this was an easy way. It was the corruption of this that it seems to have been that Jesus was most angry with. And corruption is still something that he's angry with. And the use of wealth, and that's actually where Mailer's commentary is really, really interesting in how we look at wealth and how wealth looks at us and how wealth takes a hold of us and how we use and abuse that wealth that we're given. And it would seem to me that it's about giving all to God and coming under the lordship of Jesus, the woman who threw the coin in, gave her living, Mailer says, gave much more than the wealthy who might have been given their tithe or more than that. We need to ask ourselves, and we as a community of God's people need to ask ourselves at this time, as we're thinking about what we're going to do with some of our finances to be a place of mission into this community and a place of mission in Uganda last night to hear some of what is going on with Fields of Life in Uganda would encourage us to become involved with that wonderful uh, development charity as they do amazing things in Uganda. We will have that opportunity. So financially, that's going to be a test. And we need to ask ourselves, is the wealth that we've been given under the lordship of Christ for the good of his kingdom coming, or is it for the good of us to feel good and compete with our neighbours? Remember that t-shirt that I shared with you once that's out in the Northern Iron webpage? Forgive me for quoting it. The Malone Road, giving you reasons to feel crap since 1845. Is that what our wealth does? Make the person beside us feel less because they haven't got what we've got? Even in the pew, do we feel less because we haven't got what they've got? Or are we trying to compete with what they've got, which makes the other neighbor feel even worse? How we deal with our finances, the corruption that that can bring. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus does express that very problem in this overthrowing of the tables. But there's something else as well here, is there not? Were the Jews not looking so hard at the temple that they missed the reality? looking so hard at this place that they missed what the place was there to allow them to be and to do. Maybe ourselves. Do we think that coming here is where we find God? And that by coming here once a week might be enough to earn our salvation? And even those who maybe theologically don't think that, and maybe those of us who theologically are making sure that it's not about that, in practice, 
Is there something within us that keeps us right with God by just turning up on a Sunday? Is that why we're here? And coming here fulfills something like it's a cul-de-sac on a Sunday? We come and we give to God. We sing a few songs. We'll even listen to him even when he goes off on a rant. We listen to those prayers and we laugh at the children's talk and we might even get more out of the children's talk when we get out of the sermon. Not because we can listen better to the children's talk but because it's better than the sermon. And we come and we do all that stuff and actually that's it. It's just our cul-de-sac. Or is it, as I keep demanding that it should be, that gateway into Monday morning? Well, not for me because that's my day off, you understand. But for those of you who've enjoyed your weekend... And you're going back tomorrow and you're dreading it when I'm going, ha let me hear your Facebook messages now. It's great to be at the weekend. You're going back to work and you're coming out of this enabled for that, inspired for that, encouraged for that, knowing that coming here is one of the important things that you do, not because you're finding God here, because he's there with you and in you, but because God has thought it really sensible. And for the younger generation, can I say this really strongly? Whatever we think of this church thing, God in the scriptures tells us very clearly that it's a good thing to be among God's people because among God's people, something happens to God's people that doesn't bring them the presence of God but enhances or opens their eyes and lightens their minds to the presence of God within them and in coming to worship, something happens that is truly important. But, but, it is not salvation itself. It is not a means of salvation itself. It's not even where we find God itself. Because that is within you and me. So what was it that they missed Jesus, or the prophets rather, are going on about what they missed in this temple all the way through the Old Testament. What was it they missed? They came and they killed a dove or they killed a lamb or they did all these things or tried to get themselves purification and they went through this system that had been handed down. But what was the reality that God wanted? Well, I can't help going back to Morris Harris's mantra and favorite verse that he lived by. For those who are new, Morris was one of the saints of this congregation that sadly we lost a few years ago. And every time I hear this verse, whether it's sung or whether it's read, that's who I think about as an embodiment of this verse. He has showed you, O man, what is good, man and woman, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This is what they'd missed. Oh, let's go and we'll go to the temple and we'll have a celebration and we'll have a wee bit of a party and we'll go in there and we'll be there for this ritual and that ritual and the other ritual. That wasn't what it was. It was about acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly with your God. That's why we come. To be encouraged by other saints on the journey and pilgrims on the journey to know what it is to go out again and act justly in Belfast to love mercy in our neighborhoods and to walk humbly in it all with our God. We are his presence. We'll come to that in chapter 14. If you love me, keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you to, and to be with you forever. So Jesus says to us in chapter 14, 
If you love me, you will obey my commands. Now there's a change, but we'll come to that. Not religious duty. Out of relationship, connection, and love relationship. Then we will begin to live out this stuff. Then we will act justly. Then we will love mercy. Then we will walk humbly before our God. And God will give us an advocate. The Holy Spirit. Verse 23 and chapter 14. Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and listen. And we will come to them and make our home with them. The Jews thought God's home was the temple. Jesus says, no, no, no. We'll make our home with you. With you. With you. God's home on earth. You. No pressure. We are the presence of God. We are God's presence in the world that we live in. Tomorrow, even today, even maybe at open house lunch, there is somebody in the silence longing for a word from God. You're his presence. There is somebody in your family, maybe need the arm of God, just put around them. There are people starting university in this area and as David was praying about, they might be disorientated. They might need the present. They might be coming home on Thursday night a little bit of the worse for wear and their heels might be chaffed and they might not make it back home with those heels so maybe God needs to give them a pair of flip-flops at the door and gates of Fitzroy to get them home. They will begin into botanic school this week just needing to hear the truth, wanting to know some morals, as David prayed for again, in the midst of a world that's dark. They would need God to just tell them the way to go. In your office, on the council, at Stormont, in your school, on your street, in your golf club, at the yacht club, people need the presence of God and you don't need to give them an invitation to the gospel according to the West End that they might find God because in a moment or two, when we say the benediction, you go as God's presence scattered across the city. Where will people find God this week? Where is his temple? Will we respond and allow the Spirit to fill us? What was El's psalm last week? Was it about us emptying ourselves so that life in all its fullness could dwell within us? Let's empty ourselves. And let's give more room for the Spirit to fill the temple. Not so tubby as it used to be to fill the temple so that we can be God's presence in the world today.